This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Eye on the Market podcast for October. Uh, Last time, we looked at the semiconductor vehicle and other goods bottlenecks, which we expect to resolve themselves in the months ahead. Uh, We interpret declining business surveys that we're seeing right now as the result of a temporary supply shock and not a sign of inadequate demand. As a result, we think growth will pick up next year and a bunch of cyclical and energy positions should benefit from that. However, while the goods bottlenecks will probably dissipate, we're looking at extremely tight labor markets and rising wages that I don't think are going to clear up so quickly and that are also at odds with current Fed policy. So on the first page of today's note, we take a look at, at, at really the fundamental catalyst for the weird situation that we're in right now, which is a surge in goods spending relative to services in both the U.S. and Europe. Uh, in other words, once the pandemic hit, people started buying a lot more stuff. Uh, than services, that stuff tends to be very semiconductor intensive. uh, And then you've got um, a massive supply shock given the degree to which goods spending is highly reliant on imports from Asia, where the uh, lower vaccination rates and lower efficacy of the Chinese vaccines have led to more severe worker density protocols and things like that. Um, But again, over the next few months, we expect those things to dissipate. What is not going to dissipate so quickly, however, or the tightness in U.S. labor markets. Some of the surveys are off the charts in terms of uh, difficulty filling jobs, plans to raise worker compensation, uh, wages, wage increases, eating into overall business optimism. And in today's note, we, we walk through where all the workers have gone or uh, or, you know, a list of, of the categories that um, uh, with respect to workers that have left the labor force. So let's tick through them. The first big category is a controversial one, but it's the universe of workers who, at least as of early December, had been receiving for some period of time benefits that were higher than their prior salaries. And so this number is estimated to be between two and a half to three million people. Now, those excess benefits are are coming to an end right now, but it may take some time before those people feel a full economic incentive to go back to work. And remember, as we discussed last time, the foreclosure and eviction moratoria are still in place in a lot of cities and states around the country. You've also got about one and a half million people more than usual that retired during the pandemic. It was a pretty steady linear trend beforehand. Um, Uh, But about one and a half million people left the labor force um, and retired. And there's some research that rising stock markets and housing prices allowed them to do that. But when you look at the timing of when those retirements occurred, uh, COVID was the primary catalyst for making them quit in the first place, or retire in the first place. Then you've got about several hundred thousand people, at least, maybe almost a million, uh, of missing immigrants and non-immigrant temporary workers. Visas granted to them collapsed during the pandemic. And while some of those visas are starting to recover, 
um, there's a huge hole in the labor force from all of those visas that weren't given uh, for such a long period of time. And um, you know, there's a lot of strange things going on in, in the immigration system. Trump had cut the number of family preference green cards, and that simply increased the availability of something called employment-based green cards. But only around a third of them were granted by the September 30th deadline, and the rest may be lost for good if Congress doesn't act. Another category is an increase in self-employment. While these people are still in the labor force, uh, around 800,000 people left things like manufacturing and agricultural jobs for, for individual construction jobs and ride hailing. So when you read about shortages in goods and food production, part of it's uh, uh, attributable to this increase in self-employment. And then the, the last category is a, is a hodgepodge of one and a half million people that left the labor force for all sorts of other reasons. Um, some of them because they can't get childcare, even, even with schools reopening. Some of them because they're concerned about getting COVID. Uh, three to four million people each have cited in some census surveys that those two things are affecting uh, their ability and or inclination to go back to work. Now, um, about one to two million of, if you, if you add up all those categories, it's about seven million. One to two million of, of those people are indicating that they plan to re-enter the labor force fairly quickly. Um, but that said, you're still missing a few million people. And so we do expect an increased labor supply over the next few months, but it might not be enough to restore the pre-COVID balance of supply and demand in the labor market, which was already pretty tight. So wage pressures and labor shortages may be an endemic feature of the post-COVID economy and put a lot of pressure on the Fed uh, by the middle of next year if we're looking at still a 0% funds rate and 4 to 5% consistent wage inflation. Now, by the way, the Fed and, and both the staff and the FOMC participants um, expect inflation to moderate in 2022, and the staff is actually thinking that inflation will fall below 2% next year. Um, I disagree with them, and for all of the obvious reasons. The second topic this week is Taiwan, um, and uh, it fits in the help-wanted scheme because there's a lot of presumption that the U.S. would help Taiwan in any kind of military conflict with China. Um, I don't think that's the case, but let's go through the details. The reason everyone's so focused on this, the market cap of the world semiconductor index is now higher than the market cap of the world energy index, uh, an indication that the world's becoming a lot more reliant on technology than traditional energy, well, you know, notwithstanding the energy supply issues that we're having right now, which we'll discuss in a future eye on the market. Um, Taiwan's TSMC has a market cap that's double, more than double that of Intel. So there's a lot of focus right now on what happens to global semiconductor supply chains uh, with respect to this whole China-Taiwan issue. The, my perception is any developments, whether now or in the future, that constrict Taiwanese semiconductor supply would end up with a multi-pronged and costly and lengthy effort by the U.S. to rebuild its own semiconductor pr production capacity rather than to vent Taiwan itself. So... What's going on? Uh, well, China's been sending a couple hundred jets into Taiwanese airspace. Uh, President Xi said that complete reunification of the motherland must and will be fulfilled. And he also warned the Chinese people have a glorious tradition in imposing separatism. Um, Taiwan's defense minister said tensions with China are at their worst level in 40 years. 
to be clear about this, the U.S. is not obligated by treaty to defend Taiwan. There was, past tense, a Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty uh, in, that was put in place in 1955, which obligated the U.S. to defend Taiwan. <clears throat> but this treaty was abrogated permanently by the U.S. in 1979 in exchange for China establishing relations with the U.S. and also, believe it or not, in exchange for Chinese support for what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan, where we were, where the U.S. was arming the Afghan Mujahideen. Anyway, um, this Sino-U.S. Mutual Defense Treaty was replaced by the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, and all that does is obligate the U.S. to provide Taiwan with, quote-unquote, sufficient defense capabilities. Arms sales from the U.S. to Taiwan last year of $11 billion were the highest on record, but you know, I don't think that's going to amount to very much if a military conflict were ever to occur. If you look at the data for China and you adjust their military spending for wage and purchasing power, it's around 90% of U.S. levels. And uh, earlier this year, I spoke with a team at the RAND Corporation that specializes in, in analyzing the balance of power in the region, specifically China, Taiwan, and the U.S. And since 1996, China has radically changed the balance of power in the region. We have a couple of charts in here that, that show that, um, and we've written about this before. Essentially, China has been investing in destroyers, cruisers, aircraft carriers, uh, intermediate-range missiles, anti-submarine warfare, long-range bombers, and what was in 1986 an almost impossible task for China to impose its will in a 7 to 14 day campaign to take Taiwan um, is, is, was as of 2017 all of a sudden a 50-50 proposition and, and um, the gap between China and Taiwan and the U.S. Is, it just continues to grow. And um, you know, as one example, in 1996, um, around 100% of Chinese ships would be Estimate, were estimated to be destroyed by U.S. submarines in the seven-day campaign, and that number is now less than 40%. So um, that's why, as far as I can tell, um, and at least in my opinion, um, the, the most likely response that the U.S. would ever mount here um, would be some mili maybe military aid to Taiwan, but the more practical response would be to try to increase its current 12% manufacturing capacity for semiconductors up to some higher number. The last uh, topic for this week on help wanted is refers to some of the highly indebted states in the United States that have not just a lot of bonds outstanding, but a large pile of unfunded retiree health care and pension obligations. These, uh, these states got a lot of help from the federal government. And so COVID hasn't turned into the municipal disaster that many people, including me, feared that it might. Um, around 40 states are now reporting general fund revenues for 2021 above their initial forecasts. And if you add up the March 2020 CARES Act, um, an extension authorization in December of 2020, and then the American Rescue Plan, there's something like six to $700 billion were transferred from the federal government to the states. And while less explicit than a federal bailout of underfunded pensions, the acts from the last couple of years are, were essentially still wealth transfers from citizens of less indebted states to citizens of highly indebted states. So we wanted to at least take a look 
at the most in, indebted states right up until uh, COVID began, which is the last data that's available from a lot of the state consolidated annual financial reports. And again, I, I think the, the data as of right before COVID began is probably a good proxy for where they are now, given all of the aid that's been the channel to the, to the states. And um, we have this iPod ratio where we look at the share of state revenues required to service debt and amortize all the unfunded pension retiree health care obligations over the next 30 years using our assumed investment return of 6% on a diversified uh, defined benefit plan portfolio. And so as, as shown in the chart, almost all the ratios have improved some substantially since our last analysis. And why wouldn't they have? Uh, asset values for public and private equity have gone up a ton. And as everybody knows, a lot of the municipal, you know, state and local plans are huge investors in private equity. Um, there have been some tax increases. There have been reductions in retiree health care plan coverage, salary accrual caps, contributions to underfunded plans, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the big, big mover here is Illinois. Um, but even after the tax increase that they passed, uh, they're still looking at something like a third of all government revenue having to go to pensions. I don't think that's very sustainable. And um, and Illinois also has just recorded its seventh straight year of population loss and a population loss that's, that's accelerating each year. So the, the bottom line um, for us is that the most indebted states, many of which, by the way, are controlled by Democratic legislatures and governors, still have to dedicate almost a third of their revenues uh, to unfunded pension and retiree health care obligations in order to service them, despite this very favorable market environment. Um, I think financial repression and, and federal transfers have given these states a reprieve. But for residents of these states, a diversified municipal portfolio is still highly recommended here, uh, even at the expense of having to pay state taxes on out-of-state bonds. So, uh, that is the end of this week's Eye on the Market. Our next piece uh, will be um, the, our Thanksgiving Eye on the Market sometime in mid-November. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.